Invogue didn't know themselves enough to be able to bring the Invogue flavor to any record, regardless of the producer. That is the statement of the episode. I love that. I love that. Yes. This is a Culture Inject production. Welcome back, folks, to Part of Us, an Invoke fan cast. Before we jump into today's episode, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Invoke Craze and on Twitter at Part of Us Fancast. If you want to get in touch with us, write us a letter or record a voice message and email it to us at partofusevf at gmail.com. Come on, voice messages. Um, if you're enjoying Part of Us, please continue leaving us an Apple Podcast rating and review. Um, it's not a review, but listener The Real M wrote to us and said, Hello, who would have thought thir- uh, 32 years after their debut, they would have a podcast dedicated to the legendary group In Vogue? I really enjoy this show and encourage you to keep going, which is a beautiful thing. Um, and so now we have a lot to discuss this episode. So we're not going to dilly dally anymore. We're going to jump to it. How y'all doing? How's it going, friends? We got a lot to talk about. Hello. I'm great. I'm great. I'm ready to dive in to talk about the men. The men. All the divas men. All the divas (laughs) men. (laughs) Well, we got a lot going on, but before we jump into the really meaty discussion today, we forgot to shout out part of us listener Sebastian for suggesting our last episode, Tea Time with a Diva. He was the one who proposed that we discuss in vogue name drops in the media. We're ashamed that we didn't think of this idea ourselves. So shout out to you, Sebastian, for coming up with a good episode idea, and thank you for being a subscriber. Thank Thank you, Thank you Sebastian. Sebastian. One, I I have always loved the name Sebastian. It's a great I name. Have always loved it's a great name. name. It really is a great name. It's so regal. But shout out to you, Sebastian. Shout out to you, Sebastian. <laughs> and do we like the name Simone? Whether or not we do, Invoke joined Simone D. Sanders for a sit-down interview on MSNBC's Simone series to preview what's next for the group. During their brief chat, Vogue reiterated that new music is on its way. Will it be a full-length album, an EP? Who knows, because they didn't say. But music is on the way, so yay! <laughs> I'm excited. Well, one, the ladies the ladies look uh, great on that interview. I loved Terry's animal print. I'm always loving Rona rocking the braids. And Cindy just always gets face. Face car never declines. My God, it was a you know, it was a bizarre like not bizarre. It was just it took me it took me aback. I was like Simone Simone Sanders. Like I I tune into Simone to talk politics, and so I was just a little like thrown by the fact that Invo right. was on Simone's show, which I love Simone. I watch it pretty regularly, but um, I know that they like to weave in pop culture when they can, um, but it was really pleasant to see the ladies hanging out with Simone, who clearly was a fan, because she, you know, started singing I think she, she was singing was at the beginning. Off key, um, but she was. So... Um, I, for me, <laughs> I was a little bit thrown, because she... Uh, directed all of our questions towards Cindy and Terry and didn't really acknowledge Rona until the until and wasn't Rona her, sitting closest to her? She didn't acknowledge Rona or ask her a question until the tail and I'm, it was only a six minute segment but still I'm kind of like 
<clears throat> I understand, you know, paying homage to the nostalgia of the way that Invoke has paved. However, they they are a three-member group now. Rona is a member of the group now. So yes, we can kind of talk about that, but let's also acknowledge what's been done now. You, she could have talked about them being in Coming to America yes. too. I mean, she did mention them doing Billboard, but it, it segued into her talking about you know, uh, in vogue in the past. So it's just kind of like, it's, it's just all these interviewers, it's more of like a regurgitation of stuff we know, you know? And it's like, let's talk about in vogue. Do your research. Stop talk, talking about, you know, them. Cause I feel like it's a bit of a slight to Rona who has put in, you know, over 15 years in, on this, on this movement, you know? So I'm like, they didn't talk about the the new album or like any of their new photo shoots or or the rocket video or you know like it it, would, it was kind of annoying but she did come in at the end and and that's just kind of what it's 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 a touchy subject for me when it comes to rona bennett okay well like two things <laughs> me too i feel you champ i'm with you yeah well like two things that i feel like are important here like number two like shout out to Rona because like you you gotta imagine the tough skin because that's like one interview of many right and you know that that's like a dynamic that I feel like we've seen play out over and over and over again and you gotta know yourself really well to be able to like take that and not let it affect you so like shout out to her yes and number two I always think it's interesting when people move through the nostalgia conversation with In Vogue, but don't acknowledge the nostalgia factor when it comes to Rona, because she was existing in in similar periods of time where In Vogue was at mm -hmm. their peak, but she was thriving in a different medium. And they never sort of talk about how unique it is to have a group, which kind of feels like a bit of a super group-ish, where you have like this established act and you also bring in someone who's got their own history and like resume exactly. and how she was part of iconic moments in pop culture as well yeah we just sort of don't uh they they never bring that in as like a talking point it's always like an either or you know exactly it's very rare that you that you could have a solo artist put their put their own uh resume on pause to like enter the equation of a group dynamic i mean johnny gill did it you know but but it's like mm -hmm. it's very rare and rona did it and you know it the equation works you know her but her time on mickey mouse club her time on jamie fox like her being a writer her being signed like like she has such a, a rich resume before in vogue that it's like if you're going to talk about nostalgia well let's let's give her her flowers too before she came into the group as well and then talk about what's happening now you know i just i i i, I know that these interviewers mean well but there's still like a, a like a subtle air of a shade um mm -hmm. and 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 dismissal mm -hmm. towards rona's contributions not just to in vogue but to the industry in general so yeah, thank you. I love Simone Sanders. I mean, her her uh, viral moment, you know, where they were talking about um, Amarosa. Amarosa. <laughs> it will always be iconic. She's like, Don. Don. <laughs> and she, she's great. I, I stand her. I love her. But it's just like, you know, who knows? She probably didn't even write these questions. I mean, somebody probably was like, well, what can we ask in Vogue? Let's Google quickly. So, you know, hopefully uh, some people will start doing better in the future. Hopefully. Yeah. Um, 
But uh, uh but but speaking of hopefully people doing better, I don't think Billboard is on that list yet. Uh because they published uh their hot 100 all-time all-time top all-female groups ranking in Vogue and they came in at number 9 behind Exposé, who I have no idea who they are. Uh no shade to, no I, 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 I don't know who that is. Maybe maybe I know what song but I don't know who that is. Um, they also came behind Wilson Phillips, the Shirelles, the Bangles, the Pointer Sisters and Destiny's Child, TLC, and the Supremes, who rank number one on the list. What are you all's thoughts on this list? I was just going to say happy Women's History Month. Okay. Um, happy Women's History Month. Shout out to all the ladies. Shout out to all the groups, um, girl groups, that is. I think it's interesting because like this topic today we're talking about some Bengalis and you know how men kind of um can control women in the music industry and so when I was looking at the list I was just kind of comparing the groups against like the you know kind of gender theory the theory of the Svengali and of you know um the you know girl groups in particular being dominated by men and so you know the Supremes of course they're talented beautiful and they earned it um, 12 number ones they'll never be surpassed I don't think anybody is going to surpass 12 number ones definitely not a group um, in this day and age so I think they'll all, their their spot is definitely safe but Holland Dozier Holland wrote 10 of those and then you have the Barry Gordy equation he was the record executive at Motown he basically was Mr. Motown and so because of that tight relationship with him I think that's a lot of the reason why we're there why they're at the number one spot not to take anything away from their talent um, then number two, you have TLC, who interestingly, their Svengali is a woman. So that's kind of flipped. You have Pebbles, who kind of came, had the idea for TLC, had the idea for them to wear baggy clothes. You have Destiny's Child, so Svengali is Matthew Knowles, the Pointer Sisters. Alan Rubinstein was such a big part of their career. And I was watching an interview with Anita, who um, said that I guess when they were first starting, he kind of... Um, mortgaged his house to kind of you know I guess pay for the expenses and everything that it would need to take to get them going the bangles are the kind of like the outlier because they're actually a band but really um like I'm shocked that like I always thought the go-go's were more popular the go-go's seem to have more cultural relevance like the go-go's are in the rock and roll hall of fame agreed yeah, 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 I just thought the Gokos were like so much more popular than the Bengals, but seeing this list, maybe albums wise, because this is only regarding the Hot 100, so it's a specific country in a specific format, but it's like the Hot 100 is like the chart of record for singles, so maybe, so I, just taking that into account, maybe the Gokos kind of surpassed them in other ways, but the Bengals, they, I know Susanna Hoffs wrote some of the stuff with like, I think Billy Steinberg, um, but they didn't write a lot of their stuff. Anyway, going into the next group, you have the Shirelles, and you could argue that their Svengali was Luther Dixon. He wrote a lot of songs for them. Of course, um, Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow was done by um, Carol King and Jerry Goffin, but like Luther Dixon did a lot of their stuff. Wilson Phillips are like a plant, so I don't really count them. Expose, interestingly enough, they were kind of like formed by a DJ. The original members were in the group that did Point of No Return in the 80s, but then I guess like the record company didn't like them. So the whole original lineup was like 
discarded and they brought in new people according to Wikipedia. So you kind of want to talk about women having no agency. Like it's basically not really even their group. And then you get to Invoke, who we'll get to later, um, who's number nine. And then you have the Martha Reeves and the Vandellas, who's another like Motown creation. So really like Barry Gordy is running the show, even though he's of course not as interested in the Supremes. Um, you know, I mean, he's not interested in the Vandellas as much as he is with the Supremes for, you know, reasons that, you know, people can speculate on. <laughs> So what yeah, is the what is the relevance of like the numbers? Like, is it is it based? It says like points, like how one hundred points. What does that mean? Like ten million, five point five million, four point. Well, that's the thing that, that I think is important to mention is like the stuff that's actually at the bottom of this graphic that says the all time this all time ranking is based on total career points accumulated by accredited all female groups on the Billboard Hot 100 Single Songs chart. Using an inverse point system, songs are assigned points for each week they chart and then adjusted using multipliers assigned to the different eras based on turnover rates. So, like, it's it's weird. It's a weird sort of system. Oh, so this like, system is based on, mm-hmm. like, numbers, not necessarily, like, impact or relevance or popularity. No, not, not okay. like, cultural impact or, you know, if... Like, I think about the Spice Girls all the time because I was a Spice Girls stan as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I think about the global (laughs) impact of the Spice Girls, like, that's not represented in chart placement, um, especially in the States. Right. And so that's why they are not in, like, the top 10. They're at, like, 13. But Because even for me, I'm like, I see Fifth Harmony, and I'm like, Fifth Harmony? I don't see any K-pop groups on here. I don't don't see 21. I don't see Blackpink. And I feel like if if you're using those groups, like, because they're more modern... I would have a lot. There will be a few K-pop groups on there because their global, global, you know, um, impact is much bigger than Fifth Harmony's. But and because Billboard decided to put, I think they, I think Billboard developed an entirely different K-pop chart just for that. And I don't know that they're always accurately represented in the Hot 100 based off of whatever the criteria is now for the Hot 100. So. They're not. Yeah, I mean the list is cute. I, don't I like guess. the list. The list is uh, right. It's cute or whatever. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. But I need you to go, <laughs> but champ, I need you to go listen to Point of No Return. You've heard Point of No Return. I, I'm sure that I have. I, I feel like I know that. Take it away to the Point of No Return. That's expose. That's all I know. I don't know. <laughs> they were I cute. Know. I love a little. Free, I love a little little freestyle moment. That that was a a, a slept on genre is freestyle. Okay. Um, there, I did want to make. I did want to make like a, a a Spotify or um, Apple Music playlist of like girl groups that could have been because I feel like there are a lot of girl groups that have come out maybe release like an album or EP or even just a single that have more potential but couldn't. But it just didn't pan out for them, you know. There was a really interesting, like, similar list. It wasn't based on, like, um, I don't think it was, it didn't come from Billboard. But there was, like, a pyramid of, like, girl groups. And they did, like, this infographic where they had, like, different levels of girl groups based on impact. And it kind of went, more or less, I think it was, it was based on, um, like R&B uh, girl groups and so um, it was 90s R&B girl groups and it was completely wrong I remember it was Complex Magazine and they tried to put in Vogue below, oh it was Complex yeah, yeah below Escape like no like if you're talking Impact particularly in the 90s like 
most of the reason why labels were signing all of those girl groups is because En Vogue was so successful because there was exactly. a lot of groups like people forget like I mean like I forget a lot of the groups that were out that I kind of remember like Body and Lace like they were out when En Vogue was out but En Vogue kind of flipped the game because now it was like you you don't want to just have like these kind of like the freestyle groups like the cute little you know girls wearing the tight clothes that can't really sing that can sing a little bit but can't really sing when En Vogue came out it was like okay we need vocals we need girl groups that can do ballads mm-hmm. we need girl groups that can so like to put them below people that they influence I was like this that list was trash so with Billboard at least I can say they're trying to be objective based on how well you did on the Billboard 100. And like I said, it's solely the Billboard 100, which is United States. Um, and it's mainly really an airplay chart, even though I know it incorporates sales, but um, it's mainly airplay. So that's why, you know, pop, like you probably have an expose because R&B, country, like the Dixie Chicks, like like they sold tons of records and were very successful single-wise in the country's market, but because they don't play country on pop radio, they're not going to rank high. Mm. So, just, you have to keep in mind that this is specifically like basically pop radio, United States, singles. That's it. But what I did enjoy, what I enjoyed about that complex list, to your point, Champ, earlier, is like, there were lots of folks I forgot about in terms of that like sort of girl groups that I've like maybe were probably better than but they just had that one hit or barely a hit and so like they divided out that list it was um the icons which was tlc and vogue escape and tlc uh swv escape and then in vogue and they had the all stars which was like your just your destiny's child your um total and they had like hit makers which was like jade and uh divine and black and allure and then they really went into like the one hit wonders which was where it got really interesting because there were folks I just never remembered. Like, I don't I don't remember. I remember the Braxtons had a group and I kind of stand the Braxtons as a group. Um, but they had like Pure Soul and Eternal and Ex-Girlfriend, um, Cut Clothes, some of those folks. And then they even had like layers below that. Um, so there were just lots and lots and lots of girl groups that I just think maybe had promise, but never got to that point. But that's for another day. Which sucks, yeah. I also want to point out that if you guys have a chance to go on the Billboard website and look at, like, um, the list itself, the picture they use of Invo compared to all the pictures of other girl groups, Invo just looks top tier glamour you know and so it's just kind of like yeah there's a difference <laughs> you know they're the in standard Vogue, yeah they're in their red their iconic red dresses Their, you know the hair was laid in that 1940s uh pinup style you know and it's it, it, compared to a lot of the other groups you know it's just kind of like it's just a different effect, a different aesthetic that Invogue just gives. So, shout out to our girls. Thank you, Billboard, but no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we're getting into today's discussion. All the Divas men, Tommy, Denny, Frank, and more. There was Danny and Eric, Robert and Roberto. There was Troy. There was Matthew. We'll be exploring the professional dynamics between our heroic divas and the men who had a hand in creating and, some might argue, destroying them. Although some may entertain the notion that it's not a man's world, no one of sound mind will pretend the music industry is not a male-dominated realm. Behind practically every top 40 female recording artist, there is a man, an executive, a songwriter, a producer, a manager, diluting her agency. 
this arrangement is exacerbated when a female group is involved. Ooh, we about to preach today. (laughs) Didn't the emotions touch your heart a little bit more when Maurice White produced them? Were the three degrees as hot without Gamble and Huff? Could you feel the Pointer Sisters fire after David Robinson and Richard Perry? Can you spice up your life, sans Richard Stannard and Matt Rowe? So perhaps the conflict is not so much musical collaborators. Powerhouses from the Beatles to Michael Jackson had their consistent go-to production teams. We know that. It's that oftentimes with girl groups, the women become male creations, living dolls captured by the male gaze. Enter the Svengali. Think Barry Gordy, Phil Spector, Matthew Knowles, a force dictating not only the music, everything from image to career trajectory rests with them. Can a girl group, especially one put together by Svengalis, become a, a fully realized musical entity? Let's ponder this conundrum by uh, setting sail down in Vogue's roster of longtime professional relationships. First up is Champ's partner in crime, uh, Frank Gadsden Jr. (laughs) (laughs) My bestie. (laughs) Louisiana-born, Milwaukee-raised Frank Gadsden cut his teeth as a background dancer, most notably in Michael Jackson's masterpiece, Smooth Criminal and Beauty Pageant Choreographer. As fate would have it, Frank met pre-EV Cindy at a pageant and made such an impression on her that she championed for him to become Invoke's choreographer for the Funky Divas era. He would later explain he and his co-choreographers Travis Payne and Lavelle Smith did the My Lovin' You're Never Gonna Get It video for free as a quasi-audition. Yet, the power balance quickly favored Frank. He is quoted in Julia Sabo's January 31st New York Times article as saying, We tried to make En Vogue very womanish with a sophisticated flair, but we didn't want to make them slutty. The piece, titled The Sound of Style, equated Gatson and Company to that of a finishing school. Perhaps this wouldn't be alarming for a pack of uncultured nubiles on a maiden voyage to stardom. Cindy, Terry, Maxine, and Dawn all went into their 20s had already demonstrated grace, poise, and refined niceties through the Born to Sing era. Do you think Frank's words are indicative of a need for men to subsume women under the tides of male fantasy? Or was he simply upselling his brand of media training? That is actually a really good question. I will say this. When I interview, when I had the pleasure of interviewing Frank Gaston over a holiday break, he did mention how he wants like if he has like a daughter or like a granddaughter or a niece or whatever like um or just he thinks that all young women should like take a ballet class because he feels like ballet helps instill into women like how like grace and poise in their body you know like the he's he mentioned like the moving it like swans and like very graceful or whatever so i i do feel like um him as a dancer um, just being in all these different types of genres of dance informs how he individually sees a, a womanhood because it's always been like a pot of beret or like, you know, a turnout, you know, or, you know, when like a, you know what I mean? Like the, it, it, the gaze of a of womanhood for him has always been in the guise of a, of a, of a dancer. So I, I can understand wanting to, I understand wanting to 
market that type of that type of narrative. But at the same time, it is still a bit weird, especially in this day and age, because you it's like you have a man dictating how a woman should be portrayed when and when these right. girl groups when these girl groups you know or just women artists in general their biggest fan base are other women and and gay men <laughs> or and, and or women and the queer community you know what i mean so it's like what does it matter how a man sees them? Because those aren't, those men aren't buying their albums. You're not gonna, a man isn't, isn't a singer and giving him something he can feel. Now he probably can, he probably can enjoy the video because it's so sexy and sultry, but he's, he's not buying that single, you know, that's for the, the a woman. You but know I, mean? I want to chime in because I think that we haven't touched on, we did the episode last about where In Vogue was name dropped in like, literary ways but we haven't touched on the ways in which like they were name dropped specifically in hip-hop and i think about that a lot because that's currency i think and so i understand to a degree how the male gaze and this is not me excusing it because i actually don't i don't think that any 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 anything any woman should be catering to the male gaze but I understand at the time how culturally important it was to make sure that you were desirable by uh, by men in the industry and more particularly by men who were powerful and famous. Because when you got when you when you think about escape and how Biggie <laughs> talks about escape in a lyr- <laughs> lyrically versus how others talk about in vogue lyrically, I think it's interesting because it does start to create a currency or a value around what in vogue brings to the table, not just musically, but how they present themselves aesthetically and how valuable that is for men. But to your point, the core audience who's buying the albums and making the songs go up the charts are still not those folks. So it's like a weird sort of balance. I don't love the idea of not making someone slutty. I think that's very dated, um, but it was 1993 when that quote came out, but I would imagine maybe he still thinks that way. I think I remember him referring to that again in the in Vogue podcast, but, um, I don't know. I just don't find it. Uh, I, I don't know that that is where we're at now. And I don't think that we can't discredit what he brought to them and what he brings to the industry. Cause he's a legend. However, I just think there's, uh, we we have to be more nuanced in our way of talking about women now in a way that they couldn't be able to do for themselves in the 90s. Exactly. Because womanhood in and of itself is an amalgam of things. You know, it's it's layered. So how you view women is not necessarily how all women view themselves. Uh, which is why, you know, certain groups like the Spice Girls were so iconic because you had these five women who were expressing different parts of femininity, you know, whether it's like super bougie and posh, whether it's like, you know, edgy, whether it's sporty, whether it's, uh, unconventional, whether it's like cutesy, like they're, they're, and th- those are just five of the hundreds of ways one can express femininity so in vogue is just one aspect of that um which i think like i said it 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 solidified them in this realm of music and nostalgia moving forward because i feel like for for their brand it was like their 
they're, they represent a woman that men want to be with and a woman that other women want to be, you know, like the iconic black dresses and hold on, you know, or the, like the iconic red dresses, etc. you know, or even in the don't let go video, like it's just, you know, in Vogue, in Vogue has been, have been chameleons with their look. So it's like a lot of women see themselves and it's like, oh, oh, like that look is cute. That look is cute. I want to look like that. So like women aspire to like, to this aesthetic, but also men aspire to be with a woman like that. Post in Vogue, Frank Starr continued to rise as he choreographed for everyone from Brandy to Jennifer Lopez to Beyonce. Evident in his work, particularly the creative direction of De- for Destiny's Child, is in Vogue's template. Disney hired him as a choreographer for the muses in the 1997 animated adaption of Hercules. Oddly, Disney did not consult with in Vogue when creating the 2D clones. Do you see similarities in Frank's subsequent work to that of Invogue's? And if so, is he entitled to reimagine it? I definitely saw a lot of similarities between, you know, the groups he choreographed after Invogue to Invogue. I remember the Braxtons who, for some reason, they didn't make the list on the, uh, of the Hot 100 Girl Groups, the top 10. <laughs> no, but I'm hoping to be shady. I, I like the Braxtons. <laughs> I like their cover of The Boss. But I, I'll say that, like, when they, they performed on the Soul Train Awards, and I remember, like, um, if you, if you can find the clip, I don't remember what song they did, but they opened with, like, a little bit of Hold On. Like, of course, Destiny Shout, there's, like, a huge invoke influence on Destiny Shout. And one thing I will always, one reason I will always love Destiny Shout, Latoya, Latavia, Beyonce, Kelly, Michelle, Farah, like, they always gave invoke their props. So it's not like it was a secret. Like, you know, there's some people, like, who now, like, escape, like, they were doing invoke and, um, you know, on Teen Summit, SWV, who, you know, they were singing invoke songs and then they tried to act like they didn't influence them when they were come up oh who influenced you oh uh, you know we were listening to the Clark sisters oh uh, you know um but it, you know Destiny Child never played like that but to, to me also though like the template of Invogue is, is evident in Destiny Child and in a lot of the other acts that he did um after like he would always you know like that kind of um kind of thing that made them unique he kind of you know, um, I guess kind of bottled it up, you know, and resold it. And it worked for all of them. Like Destiny Child is great. I'll never take that away from them. Um, the Braxtons did what they did. <laughs> so I, mm. I do. I feel like he did reimagine it. And I do feel like he has kind of a right to, in a sense, um, because like I said, Agreed. he always pays homage to them. Like a lot of people who work with them in the past, you know, like they'll skip over them because I guess they're not hot right now. But he's always like, yeah, in Vogue, like in Vogue gave you my career. So it's all good in my book. I agree. Like he gives he gives the flowers to in Vogue. And the rela- I mean, the relationship is still there. But like, even if it wasn't, I feel like he would still give them their flowers as much as he does now. And I think that like, He's actually entitled to, that's his art form, right? Is his, his, his process and how he places choreography on folks or how he develops folks is his to do. 
And so I think how it lands on a Jennifer Lopez or a Beyonce or a Brandy or a Destiny's Child is fine because he's entitled to reimagine it. I just think it's about what the agency Mm -hmm. of the artist is in that process and how that's changed over time. Because I don't think that in the 90s and maybe that maybe it was more collaborative than we know, but I certainly feel like. If Frank is working with a Brandy now, Brandy's not saying, which he did. I think he was working with Brandy on that um, B7 project. But Brandy's going to say what she wants. And Brandy's going to be like, we're going to work together on this. Whereas I don't know back then if women had as much agency when working with collaborators to be able to say, I don't really like that. We should switch that up. Like, it doesn't feel like that was the case then. You know what you made me think of? I'm so sorry to cut you off, but... Because I meant to say it, but like, did you hear the story that like T-Boss told about when like he was supposed to choreograph the Creek video? No. And they fired him? No. No. I didn't know that. Yeah. Like it's in T-Boss's book and he came in to choreograph the Creep video and, but like T-Boss, just to kind of paraphrase, she was like, like, you know, like you just don't tell us what to do. Like you're going to collaborate with us. So he came in thinking because he did Invoke's Hold On video, which we know he didn't do Hold On because that, that was someone else. He didn't come into my loving as a choreographer. But she said, you know, he thought because he choreographed the Invoke Hold On video, we were just going to kind of do the little girly dances that he wanted us to do. Um, but like, um, we were like, no. And like, left eye started yelling something at him. But they were like, they did incorporate, I guess, one move that he put in. But like, their whole thing was like, you know, like their agency, like they were going to keep the their agency and I guess maybe it's because like they're not real singers like their visual side was very important to them so um like they want to be like well even though you know because we have Deborah Killen singing all this stuff we want to make sure that when we choreograph you know we that bankhead bounce that we always do it's our decision to do that bankhead bounce that we always do but yeah so I'm, I'm sorry that just made me think of that story like there were women who were like no like we we're gonna control you know something to a certain extent like you can't so TLC did they fired him but it makes sense for an invoke for it makes sense for a TLC type of group to do that just because they grew up they didn't they didn't grow up like being pageant girls they didn't grow up in dance you know in theater where you know most most girls who grew up in that way they're conditioned to be docile and to just fall in line versus you know t-boss chili and left eye they're kind of like who this man right. <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> so I, I definitely think it it, ha- it has something to do with like how how you were brought up you know to to look at your agency you know if you, for for cindy who is a a pageant girl and who comes from theater you know g- she she's used to going into like choreography sessions into sessions and saying okay what am i doing and, and and she'll do what she's told versus like Lisa left out Lopez. I mean, homegirl burned her, her, her man house down. So, <laughs> so there is clearly a difference. Remember they stormed the record label? Like <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So very different. Cut, yeah. Yeah. Very different approaches. Exactly. I will say that, um, the muses are my favorite part of Hercules. Um, I love any movie that finds a way to implement like a, a black R&B gospel group, which is the reason why I love Little Shop of Horrors. Mm-hmm. Um, I always love watching those. Se- 
little chaperone, you know, and of course the music. So um, I can't wait to see who they choose to put in that in in the live act, live act, live adapted film. But you know, well, we shall see. Frank maintains a friendship with Cindy and Terry to this day. His tenure within Vogue earned him three MTV Music Video Awards for Best Choreography. More wins came for routines performed by none other than the child of destiny, Beyonce Knowles. An additional Destiny's Child connection can be found with another cast member in the in the EV saga, David Lombard. David Lombard. So Jasmine Guy and uh who Jasmine Guy, Eric Benet, UNV, and as of recently, as of 2017, Kenny Lattimore. These recording acts all found themselves under the management of David Lombard. The crown jewel of his career indubitably is in vogue. Upon receiving the Doctor of Humane Letters from Fisk University in 2008, Matthew Knowles recalled, quote, I remember being at Fisk's radio station with a fraternity brother, David Lombard, and all we did was dream. David went on to put put together a group called En Vogue, and I put together a group called Destiny's Child. And it was a it was because of a dream right here at Fisk University. David was not only En Vogue's manager, he also managed the group's founders, producers Thomas McElroy and Denzel Foster. While on her not exactly Ballyhoo tour of Instagram, Don almost always mentioned that David managing both Invoke and its producers constituted a conflict of interest. So, why do you think Don continuously stresses that David simultaneously managing Invoke and FMOB created a conflict of interest? Because it's a form of control. Like he is mm-hmm. not necess- well at at this point. Um, it seems as if Thomas and Denzel are are more of the m- more of the money makers because they pretty much started in Vogue, you know. So it was like they're the ones who had that deal, not in Vogue. In Vogue was signed through them, and they were signed, you know. They had that producing deal, or whatever. So it's like that. There's a there's a, a leverage. So it's like his stock is more invested in Tommy and Denny because they're the visionaries versus in Vogue. So it's like, okay, well, I'm going to manage in Vogue, not, I feel like this is going to be like a, a running theme. I'm going to manage in Vogue, not for their agency, but based on how Tommy and Denny wants to see them. So it's like, you go back and you go back and forth. And if the girls, you know, they have an idea or they have, they have a, um, inhibitions about certain things, David is going to manage them and sway them in the direction of what Tommy and Denny wants. So I feel like that's, that's where the conflict of interest lies because you, you have to be, you, you have to favor one or the other. It's kind of like, you know, mm-hmm. when, um, I forgot, what was the group that Justin Timberlake was, was, uh, managing? It was like a boy, a boy, a male group. The point I'm trying to make is that those those artists they were dropped and they talked about how um they couldn't get what they needed needed from 
from them because they were they were also artists. Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, so yeah, we want to get you where we want to go, but then what happens when they want to do a project, they want to do a video, they want to go on tour, now you're on hold and have to wait for them to fulfill their artistic obligations before they can talk to you. It's the same thing with this. It's like, yeah, Invoke probably has aspirations and, and ideas that they want to implement and pursue, but if it doesn't fall under the guise of what Tommy and Denny had in mind david is going to favor that over the ladies absolutely i think like he's it's not just that he i mean he was tommy and denny's manager first Tommy and denny they really have all the power they're the ones with the deal with i guess at the time it would be atlantic and then their role their writers and producers they're the musicians so i think of swv's Unsung, where they had that manager, Maureen. I think her name was Maureen Singletary. I don't know if that's her last name, but her name was definitely Maureen. And Maureen, you know, she was on the Unsung, making sure you know you know what she did. And one of the things that she did was get the ladies a $1 million publishing deal. Now, SWV, I don't really look at as writers, you know, but if they're writers, and Vogue could definitely be writers, but would David Lombard go out and get in Vogue a publishing deal knowing that he's managing like writers and producers that basically oversee them. I doubt that he would. All of those theme songs that they were doing, Tommy and Denny wrote them. So now if somebody came along and said, you know, oh, we have this idea from Vogue, like they're still going to be going through Tommy and Denny because like that's what they do. So like, like a lot of collaborations or a lot of things, oh, we want to write this song from Vogue. He might likely block that because like his main loyalty is to them because they are the ones probably making the lion's share of the money. They're the ones who have, you know, the most control out of everything. So yeah, definitely. I get what she means about there being a conflict of interest. Like in some ways it might work in their favor, but they really should have kept that separate in my opinion. So through his tutelage and Vogue witnessed its biggest successes and its most colossal commercial failure. Let go during the renegotiation period between Funky Divas and EV3 and on the sidelines during the EV3 era when the Divas were managed by the Left Bank organization, David returned for the biggest blemish on Invoke's almost pristine discography. Masterpiece Theater saw In Vogue relinquish the executive producer credit it had on EV3 for the poisonous sucker of Foster and McElroy. Re-signing a production deal. How could that happen? Intermissant for all, Elektra and Warner Brothers dropped in vogue due to the marginal sales of Masterpiece Theater. And outside of other artists sampling their work, Foster and McElroy never appeared on a national chart again. Both parties blamed the label, eschewing dismal reviews from critics and music fans' opprobrium. Did Masterpiece Theater suffer due to a lack of support from a label or a lack of promotion from in vogue. I'm going to say both. I'm going to say, I feel, I feel like I think it was both. Um, because one, the riddle, the riddle video was really good. It was really good. And there was a budget behind it. So at least there was like some, uh, some financial support from a label, um, however, I just don't think that there was a, there was a big enough push because even for me, I saw the riddle video for the first time on accident. 
And it wasn't, it wasn't like it was a world premiere. It was just like happening. I was like, is that in Vogue? You know what I mean? And I was like, oh, this song is cute or whatever. They look good, etc. cetera. Uh, but I feel like it was, it was a lack of, of push. And at the, at that time, well, no, I guess I could change my tune. I don't think it was in Vogue's fault. I think it was a label's fault because at that time, you didn't have social media. You didn't have Twitter or Facebook. You didn't have Instagram Reels. So it's like the the push came from the label. The marketing came from a label. When the ladies promoted it, it's because the label booked those dates for them to interview, for them to perform, you know, for them to do radio interviews. Like that was what the label's job was supposed to do and management or whatever. So I feel like, yeah, that's the Masterpiece Theater, you know, not being as successful is is the label and management's fault um because one there are a few songs on there that had second single potential uh but you know it just didn't pan out that way which sucks for the ladies i agree i feel like um i i would weigh it heavier on the label support side just because i feel like they gave up on the project prematurely and they mishandled the project outside of i think riddle was the right single i think riddle was treated properly with the video like you said champ but i just don't know that there was the faith and the um the the support there or the like confidence and support there to make the project into something and it might have taken more energy and time but at this point invoke had such a such a substantial fan base that i think that they deserved a better treatment of the project um i just don't think that i think they would have shown up and done whatever they needed to do to make sure that the project was successful i just don't know that they were extended the opportunity and also because like at that time the the industry was changing the sound for groups was changing, you know? So I feel like from, from, from a label's perspective, it's like you see these other groups being a little bit more successful, like Destiny's Child, you know, in that regard. So it's like, okay, this sound is interest. It's interesting. It's like different, but it's not in vogue or, it, or it's like, or is it commercially viable? And at least for me as a fan of in vogue, I appreciated the Masterpiece Theater album. However, I can, kind of say that the album doesn't necessarily have like a commercially a, a song that that has commercial appeal you know what i mean as a fan 100 percent, i could be like k sarah sarah you know where well, like um you know all that kind of stuff yeah but i think that that's because but what song really has commercial success but i think that that's because there's like it was kind of it's not a con- it's not a concept album by definition I don't think but there's a concept there that mm-hmm. carries through and I think that was really ballsy right. to be quite honest it was really ballsy to do that especially to weave in an art form that most people don't consume every day with more classical things and elements I thought that was really really bold to try to then chart on the pop charts with and so it was um it was kind of set up for some, it was either going to land wonderfully or it wasn't at all. Like there was never going to be a middle right. ground for that project. And so I just don't know that the, the inner workings were um, invested enough in their success to really make sure that even if there was kind of a weird reaction that they still pushed and had at least one or two or three singles that did well. Yeah. 
They need. They definitely need more videos. Because let's be era. clear, like, there have been lots of trash albums that still pushed out three, two or three successful singles, exactly. and it didn't matter. <laughs> but I feel like the right, return you on want... investment at the time, you had to prove your success on first single by the two thousands, or else it was it right. was kind of gonna you. They were gonna pull their money back. They were gonna pull their resources back. Exactly. I mean, and it's like. I, I would I would be interested to kind of hear what other songs were recorded that didn't make the album. Only because, like, you know, people experiment. So it's kind of like, because this is like a, a high-concept, artsy type of project, songs were chosen that fit that narrative, that fit that theme. So I would be interested to be like, okay, what, what other songs did y'all record that might have been hits but were passed on over shelved because they didn't fit the theme of masterpiece theater. You know, like I'm sure, you know, there, when, when your name in the industry carries weight, there are producers who just want to sing you stuff. Like this song is for, so I I would imagine there are producers who like, Oh, Invogue coming out with a new album. Let's send them this. But because it probably didn't, you know, fit the, the theme of the album, it didn't make it. So I'll be in- I'll be interested. I'll be interested. But can we just talk really quickly about the role of a manager? Because in some instances, like managers are superstars kind of in their own right. For instance, like you hear a name like Benny Medina, and it's like he's this mastermind that, you know, regardless, is going to navigate your career to certain heights. And I mean, that's just one I can think of off the top of my head. But there are others that, you know, it's like you want to have this person behind you fighting for you. And so with, you know, if the label's not giving you support, I still feel like, you know, like what tours were they on? Like what tours did they have set to promote the album? I feel like that's the manager's responsibility. Um, anything outside of, you know, the actual, I guess, promotional um, tour of going on like, you know, Leno or whatever. So what TV shows are you going to be on to promote the record? Because we know in Vogue loves cameo on TV shows. There was none of that. So I do feel like, David Lombard really kind of felt them with managing the rollout, particularly, and I'm sure they probably knew like they didn't have label support. So, you know, they should try to have endorsements or something. I don't even think they got the cover of any magazines and really the only actual article that I remember that was, you know, actually like, you know, like there was a photo involved with it. It was for this magazine called Code. Um, which is like, you probably don't even remember it because y'all are too little, but it was like the short-lived Black Men's Magazine. That was the only, you know, actual article. It wasn't like a little, you know, paragraph review. So I'm like, you know, the public, their publicist felt them. I feel like the manager felt them. And um, yeah, David Lombard, he didn't do a good job. They put too much faith in him um, for that project. That that is their job. Like, so it's it sucks that, you know. I feel like, as a manager or just at, if you're on the team of an artist, like your job is like to make it work. So even if you know, the label don't believe in it, it's like you just kind of go for it and figure out a way to like let's push this, this album to make it the best it can be. And I just feel it seems as if at least to me. The vision, the, the, the vision for the album was the most, um, 
seems like the most important. But it's like, okay, now it's the album is done. Like, how do we, how do we match that vision with how we promote it? You know what I mean? So yeah, it's like, how is it that the ladies don't have like a a a, a spread in ebony or essence or jet? You know, why aren't they on these talk shows? Like, you know, because even for EV three, when they had like the split with Dawn, like they were still doing appearances and they were still doing all the stuff, you know, so it's like, okay, this is like essentially invokes quote unquote comeback, you know, after a, a brief hiatus. So it's like, what, what happened? And, and it sucks that, you know, Masterpiece, because I, I like Masterpiece Theater as an album more than I like EV3. To be fair uh, though. But that's just me personally, me personally. To be fair though, I feel like the, this is not to discredit them at the time, but I do believe that a lot of the reason why they were able to secure as much visibility as they were during the EV3 era is because people wanted to know what happened. Like, people wanted to talk to the girls after the the, the split. Like, mm-hmm. and there was a curiosity mm-hmm. there. Even if it wasn't talked about, I think people wanted to hear from them and understand what's it giving now. And I feel like that wasn't, that grace wasn't extended into this era when they had more or less solidified themselves as a trio. They were like, okay, now we've kind of, I feel like there was also an industry like, okay, we gave them that last round. This, the, a lot was stacked against them, probably more than they understood or thought even being on a major label with support from a major label on this round because that last album had the energy behind a breakup behind it that kind of fueled visibility in a way that I think by the time Masterpiece Theater came around, people had sort of either resolved they didn't care about it anymore or um, or the label was just like, okay, what are we doing now? Sometime after the Deliverance from Eva soundtrack, in Vogue parted ways with David, turning over the reins to Brooke Payne, Joe Mulvihill, and currently Dialobe Johnson. Still, the most conscientious vestige of Invoke's downfall for mainstream glory remains. Let's talk Foster and McElroy. So let's be very clear, friends. Let's be very clear, friends. There would be no Invoke without Thomas McElroy and Denzel Foster. This legendary Bay Area duo started out working with Confunction before producing rumors for Timex Social Club, then forming the ensemble Club Nouveau with Jay King, which spawned the hit singles Why You Treat Me So Bad and Lean On Me, the new Jack Swing and Bill Withers cover. Neither touring with Madonna nor Jay King's business partner, a partnership with Benny Medina could preclude the implosion of Club Nouveau. Tommy and Denny stuck together, crafting Tony Tony Tony's debut and garnering a production deal from Atlantic Sylvia Roan, who, according to Denny, was keen on the upstarts producing records as their own act, a la Quincy Jones. Climax, shout out to Climax, had given Sylvia problems. Shout out. I love me some Climax. Climax had given Sylvia problems, so when Tommy and Denny presented the idea of producing a girl group, she balked, only relenting following In Vogue's formation. There would be no In Vogue without Thomas McElroy and Denzel Foster. Hold On single-handedly launched a thousand girl groups. Conversely, 
In Vogue, couldn't have a shelf life as a product. Cracks appeared as early as Funky Divas in a battle of Tommy and Denny versus Sylvia Rome. Denny explained to the hosts of We Got Issues podcast that Sylvia attempted to enlist the production talents of, T- of Teddy Riley and Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis in hopes of salvaging In Vogue's forthcoming sophomore effort. Denny and Tommy held on to the record until Warner's Doug Morris bargained for it, noting Atlantic's and Warner's horrible sales in 1991. Funky Diva's release launches in vogue into crossover territory and Tommy and Denny retain control. So should Tommy and Denny be commended for not compromising or could Funky Diva's have benefited from other producers' contributions? I do commend Tommy and Denny because Funky Divas is their most commercially successful album. You know what I mean? Um, it, it's it, it's their well, it's their most iconic album. Most of the hits that people sing from In Vogue come from that album. Um, most of their iconic performances come from that album. Most of their iconic looks come from that album. Um, so yeah, it was it was a good idea. However, um, I feel like that same energy is most likely what pigeonholed them moving forward. Yeah, I I kind of it's weird. I feel I feel both ways. <laughs> like part of me really appreciates Funky Divas as it is and understands the like kind of importance of it being a solely and exclusively, you know, Tommy and Denny product. But I also, my curious mind wants to know <laughs> what Teddy Riley and Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis would have done with an in vogue in the early 90s. 100%. So I can't right. quite kick yes. that feeling because I feel like, especially on the Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis side with what they were doing with Janet, I'm just like, wow, what would yes. that have, how would that have landed on an in vogue? What energy would that have brought? But I can't sacrifice that sort of wondering like I can't sacrifice the hits we got to wonder about that because Funky Divas is a masterpiece and so I just feel like there's no yeah we I I wouldn't feel comfortable sort of wondering and sacrificing the things we got for for what we maybe would have gotten from from other producers but I do think that you know we could have got a song or two at the end, you know, <laughs> a B-side or something. You know, a B-side would have been cute. Well, you sang a new song. It makes me think of when we did the Funky Divas retrospective. My thing was that I felt like Funky Divas had too many covers. So I think, of course, giving them something he can feel, it's iconic and perfect. But Hooked on this, hooked on your love. I'm sorry, hooked on your love could have been a B side to giving them something he can feel as a bonus. And you have like, let's. I'm not saying like this was even considered from Vogue, but I'm just saying, what if they had a song like the Kissing Game that Teddy Riley did for High Five, like an original song, like Yesterday. It's a great exactly. acapella song, and I love it. Like, if, like when I listen to Funky Divas, that's one of my favorites. But I'm just saying, like that could have been something that they would do live or a B side in favor of a new song by Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. Uh, the the thing is that like I think w- some of it is artistic integrity, but then another part of Tommy and Denny's uh, wanting to hold on to having pr- 
of being able to produce every track is control though. You know, like it's not like, oh, we're going to find the best songs. And so going back to our list of, you know, the Hot 100 Girl Groups, the Pointer Sisters, just because I love them so much. Alan Rubinson is kind of their Spengali, but he, you know, he's going to find you the best song. So it's not always something he wrote. Richard Perry, he didn't write Jump. You know what I'm saying? It's like, I'm going to find you the best songs and I produce them. With Tommy and Denny, they have to write, produce, play the instruments. You know what I'm saying? So they're not necessarily looking for the best songs. And, and not to say that Monkey Divas is not a great record. It's good that they stood up for Free Your Mind, even though Sylvia was kind of right, though, because, you know, like Urban Radio, it didn't really get a lot of love. Like at their peak, it peaked at number 16 on the R&B charts when pretty much everything else they had did had gone number one or top 10. So she was right about, I, I can kind of get why her as an executive wouldn't understand why, you know, like this black R&B group is putting out a rock song. I'm happy they had conviction in that regard. But at the same time, they don't need to produce everything. And with them Vogue, I feel like them producing everything was a form of control. Like, you know, you're our group. You're not going to be working with any other producers. Um, you know, what mm-hmm. a man, of course, it's a collaboration. So they're like a featured act. So maybe that's why, you know, like they were allowed because in that interview, he talked about how, you know, um, Herbie, the love bug called, they didn't call Sylvia. They called Tommy and Denny asking, you know, can and Vogue be on the record and how much was it going to cost? You know, so that means they went through David control, David Lombard, to Tommy and Denny, like, so they're controlling in Vogue. So on one hand, yes, it's artistic. On the other hand, I cannot see it as anything but, like, control. Like, no, you're not working with the hottest producers out. You're only, you're working solely with us. Any deficiencies, like, any, you know, even if we have to do covers, you know, we're not going to let anybody else write for you. Yeah. It builds a different level of trust when the artist that you signed realizes that you have their best interests in in mind and not just your best interests. I mean, yes, they're they they're visionaries, this is their group, but they're also producers. You know, what is a producer's goal? They want to get the single. They exactly. want to get the radio play because they want them royalties. They want that publishing. You know what I mean? Because that's what you that's what keeps their pockets lined up as well. You know, that's their resume when they have a chart topping single or like a top ten hit or even a number one hit. Like that's a part of their resume. So it's like essentially it's also a conflict of interest because, you know, you you want the number you want the number one single versus you want the group to have a number one single. You know what I mean? Um so it 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 it's it's like it's a catch twenty two. It's it's a bittersweet situation. Samuel to be continued. Tommy and Denny's other acts failed. Their outing is F Mop floundered. Describing Runaway Love to Billboard magazine in nineteen ninety four ahead of the F Mob release Once in a Blue Moon as almost like an F Mob track with Invoke singing on top of it, conveys the sentiment that Tommy and Denny were the talent, Invoke was the product. Tommy most likely had no way of knowing he would never produce another top 10 hit for In Vogue. Riding high with their feature on Salt and Peppa's What a Man, produced by Herbie Azure, the Divas' ascent stood in contrast to F Mob's lack of demand. Billboard's February 19th, 1994 issue indicated that F Mob was set to work with a then unknown Florida group called the Backstreet Boys. Whatever happened, no songs were released. Their project with Brenda Russell remains unreleased. Divine's meager 1998 cover of George Michael's One More Try makes for Tommy and Denny's final top 40 appearance on the Billboard Hot 100 as producers. Serendipitously, in Vogue's contract with F-Mob's Too Tough Enough Productions lapsed. 
Cindy, Terry, Maxine, and Dawn commenced a multi-year renegotiation directly with Electra. Free at last, don't let go, raced up the charts in 1996. It all seemed magic. The dolls had become real women, stars cross, Dawn abruptly departs, EV3, their first LB, L, their first LP containing tracks from producers not named Foster and McElroy, and some and some from the usual suspects underperforms. At some point prior to the new millennium, in Vogue resigns to Two Tough Enough Productions, then drops Masterpiece Theater in May 2000. Why do you think in Vogue resigned with Tommy and Denny? And I'm going to answer that, and I'm just going to say fear. I'm going to say that there was a fear of the unknown, especially because Dawn left. And it's like, instead of trying, instead of working to redefine who in Vogue is in this new era, let's just go back to what was because we can at least rely on Tommy and Denny to help us, um, to help us retain the people we already have made fans in the era when we were with them. You know what I mean? Um, although I, the EV3 era, it was a great era. Like, it, you know, whatever, to me, is like one of their best songs. Too Gone Too Long is an iconic ballad. The ladies looked amazing. Like, you know, they had all these appearances on like sitcoms and, you, you know, all these like with the Pepsi stuff, like... They just had a really good run. Rosie O'Donnell performance is an iconic performance for me as well. Um, but I think that there was a fear of the unknown, a fear of like newness, you know, and like, oh, we have to redefine ourselves because of course, you know, uh, the, the looks they were giving for a masterpiece for EV3 were not widely accepted. The whatever video was not, you know, uh, embraced by the black community because it was a little more darker, a little bit more couture, a little more high fashion, a little more European. Um, so I think it's like, let's just go back to Tommy and Denny because, you know, what they were doing, it was working for us. But know? that's a bold, that's a bold move to like, and this is not meant to be shady at all, but like to go back to folks that you haven't worked with, like substantial, the way that you haven't worked with the way that they worked with them for like funky divas specifically to go back after years and say, we're going to go back like not like full stop with you is a very like, especially in the new millennium where music, the music landscape had changed drastically. And so I just feel like it was a, I do agree though. I think it would make it fear, but also, you know, you go home to where, where what feels comfortable, like when you don't want to rock the boat too much because you're scared of what the risks might, you know, result in. You go back to where you know you've had success and you go back to where you know you've, you feel you're most comfortable because you've built up, you know, relationships over however many years. So I don't know. I, I, but again, I wonder what would have happened if they had just not and found their way elsewhere. What would that have looked like? It might not have been successful either, but we won't we won't know. Right. I mean, well, the follow up question here was like, was it a mistake not allowing Sylvia Roan to executive produce EV3's follow up? And I think that I think it was a mistake uh, simply because if there's a fear of the unknown, 
instead of going instead of going back to what is comfortable, go back to what is viable. And Sylvia Roan is the head of a label. It's her job to 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 it's her job and her team's job to understand where the industry's going, what's hot right now. So, you know, maybe if Sylvia Roan had the reins, she could have gotten them the hottest producers, gotten them the hottest glam team so that they can have some type of um, success commercially, even if it wasn't like necessarily the uh, the iconic in vogue sound, it still would have been relevant to the time. And maybe they would have had had a little bit more longevity uh, in, in the mainstream world. Two things before, because I want to hear Matan's thoughts on this too, but like, I think it's interesting. This an interesting, interesting sort of like theory or like idea to imagine because if Sylvia Rohn had taken the reins, then the accountability would have fallen on her <laughs> because if she couldn't pull it together, then that would have been on her as to not being able to deliver with a group that has already proven itself to be talented. So that would have been really interesting. And then also. I think it's fascinating that, and this is just conjecture, but that En Vogue didn't know themselves enough to be able to bring the En Vogue flavor to any record, regardless of the producer. So, like, the need to that retreat. That is the statement of the episode. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Yes. The retreating back feels like they didn't know themselves artistically enough to be able to go and say, oh, we're in vogue. We're the shit. We know exactly what we're going to do, how we're going to do it. It doesn't matter if it's on a hip hop beat or a country song. We know what to do and how to do it. And it feel, it's, it's really interesting. That's really just conjecture because I think that they do know themselves, but I think it's about confidence and being able to go and do it. Yeah, I um I would try to tackle both the questions in one um because I do agree a lot of it was fear and I think too maybe some of it was budget um or f- finances. I think um with when you're working with other producers sp- particularly like a Babyface, a David Foster and um well, I think those were the big two. Maybe even Organized Noise. I don't know how much they charge. Um it I don't know what kind of deal we have, they have with Foster McElroy. So because it was a production deal, I don't know if like, you know, studio time and the production, like it was at a lower rate or something like that. So maybe that is somewhat advantageous. Just trying to give them the grace in that respect. Maybe, um, you know, we're looking at line items, you know, like, okay, like they're only charging us this much. Whereas, you know, you work with the baby face, you work with, uh, you know, David Foster, there's going to be that recoupment in the end. Like, you know, it's all fine and dandy when you're doing it, but you know, when you have to start paying stuff back and it's coming out of your advances um, and your, you know, your royalties. And it's like, ooh, you know, maybe we could work with the people that are the cheapest, um, which I don't think that was necessarily a good idea. Um, but I'm thinking like, like that does play a little bit into it. Like, you know, um, Tommy and Denny probably get it done cheap. They get it done fast. Um, we don't have to pay for studio time. We're comfortable. We're fearful, you know. Um, so that's one aspect. Then just to like listening to that infamous, now infamous Shaka Khan interview where she was not what she said about Mary J. Blige, but when she was talking about I feel for you, how like, you know, she worked, I forget who produced it, but she did I feel for you. Then she hears it and all of a sudden there's a rapper on it. So kind of working with the unfamiliar and, you know, people that are more so current in hip hop, 
you know, like you might, you hear a song and it's like you go in, you don't really know them. So then they might, some people might bring in backing vocalists and you not know. People might bring in a rapper and you don't know and change stuff when you, you don't have a kind of close relationship with them. So I'll give them a little grace in that sense. But I do feel like some of the stuff was just kind of, um, you know, it's like you said, fearful. It's a lack of confidence because yeah, like, regardless, like build those relationships with people like Missy's on your label, build that relationship with her, like sit down and have those conversations. And like Josh said, bring that invoke flavor to whatever you're doing. They could have still done that. Um, with the Sylvia Ron thing, I'm going to tell another anecdote from SWV's, um, unsung where they talked about the, I want to say it's their second album, which I believe is called new beginnings. At some point, the, I guess the executives at the label changed and they told the story that like the new executives, because they didn't work on that record, they didn't want to have anything to do with it. So it was like, we're going to stop promotion on this one, go record your third album, which was, I think, release intention. So when you don't have the executives and your label involved and you're kind of like giving them the hand for producers who cannot promote the record, that's a huge mistake to me. Like I would want like, no, Sylvia, what do you think, Sylvia? I want to make sure that you're with this because when it's time to go for that promotion, like with, for that budget to do the promo tours, who are you going to? You can't go to Tommy and Denny because they can't do it. You have to go to Sylvia. So uh, I think it was a huge mistake for them not to let her be the executive producer. And I think if they had a better manager, he would have explained that to them. Like, oh, like if, if their manager was not working for the producers, absolutely not. You're not going to have them be the executives. You want the actual label to be behind your record. So it's just, I like, that's when it starts, when I, it just starts getting to the frustration part. It's just like, it, I don't get their line of thinking. Like if they did all that just to save some money on the record, like it's not worth it. Like, it's just like cheap toilet paper. Like it, I don't care how, like if they sell it for 10 cent and you get a thousand rolls, it's still not worth it. Like bad production is not worth it. When, when it comes to the industry, it's like companies are always looking for someone to blame. So it's like, if the label's like, okay, well, you guys go ahead and do it. And it might seem like they're, uh, they're supportive, but it's like, no, what they're doing is they're, they're shedding themselves of all accountability. And if this fails, it's going to be your fault. <laughs> that, that's what that is. But like you said earlier, Josh is like, I wonder, you know, if, you know, if Sylvie Ron was producer. And then that means that she would have had to be accountable for whatever commercial success or failure that the album would have had. Um, and so now, now she's also at fault as well. So, uh, I, it's, 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 you, you can see, you see, I see both sides. Um, it's just, it's like, dang, it's like, this sounds like this, like, there was never going to be any winner in this battle. <laughs> There's no winner. It's like, do we go with Sylvie Rowan and compromise our creative integrity? You know, or do we go with, um, Tommy and Danny to kind of like, you know, because, they got us to this point already. Um, it's, 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 it's a game of, uh, it's a game of dice. You just got to roll and hope you, and hope you get, hope you get the right numbers. But my thing is like, did they even try? Because when we talk about our integrity, like when you have a label, like you can listen to songs and pick songs. Do you think they even tried to do that? Or was it just like, oh, we're going to work solely with Tommy and Denny. If that's the case, it's just like, you kind of shot yourselves in the foot 
like at least you know you have a whole label so there's people submitting songs there's you know new producers young producers that probably aren't you know charging at the level of a dallas austin or a babyface or a david foster did they even try to have the a and r person pick songs for them or did they just you know unilaterally decide and kind of push the your own out of it and say you know we're um we're not going to work with anybody but Tommy and Denny. If that's the case, I can kind of see why, you know, like the label, particularly if they didn't like the record, which, and I think the old school T from the Yahoo group days was that Sylvia heard like an earlier pressing of Masterpiece Theater um, and didn't like it. And so they had to go back into the studio. And that's why the, like, when they talk about it took them um, a longer time to record Masterpiece Theater. Even though it's not confirmed, this is all just speculation and gossip from the Yahoo groups, but it was because that Sylvia Rome didn't like Masterpiece Theater. I'm not sure what songs were on it before um, you know, and what songs they added, but she didn't like it. I guess they turned in another version. She didn't like it and she was just like, fine, you know what? I'm going to like pay for one video. If it does well, you know, I guess you can have another one. If it doesn't, that's it. It didn't do well and it tanked. And that's because like you're cutting your executive out of the process. You're cutting all those potential songs and producers that you could have had out of the process and left with this record that is not, as we said, it's not commercially friendly. Like what format are you going to be like, oh, this is going to kill on? It definitely wasn't R&B. It wasn't what, it wasn't hip hop. It wasn't urban at the time. Was it pop? You know, like pop, TRL, you weren't on TRL. Like why weren't you on TRL? You have all these youngsters killing it. Backstreet, Britney, all these young groups. So it just didn't fit into anything. And Sylvia knows R&B radio. And so to kind of like discount her, I feel like that was detrimental. Masterpiece Theater, a critical and commercial bomb and Vogue never recovered its standing as a record-selling powerhouse. Electra said sayonara to its erstwhile moneymaker. Without a label, Invoke became a nostalgia act overnight. Later projects, all helmed by Foster and McElroy, might have been disasters if anyone besides diehard fans cared. Pyramid Records dropped Invoke in 2015 when the group turned in Electric Cafe. E1 repeatedly sent the songstresses back into the studio until the F-Mob concoctions were diluted with the sounds of other producers, even if those producers were either protégés of or managed by F-Mob. Of Electric Cafe, Tommy revealed to Pete A. Turner, Cindy and Terry called us like, quote, we want you guys to do this. You know, we might even be able to get you a check. It's to me some of their best work overall. En Vogue is a pop supergroup, and we want to present them that way. Whether they've had a hit record or not, we think this is good stuff and we don't just want them to have any kind of deal. I'd rather them put it out on their own than be on a label that doesn't understand them and want them to be and want them to just be on a dead end radio format. That's just not going to do them anything for them. I'm not worried about radio when I do music. And neither is Denny. We're just trying Uh. (laughs) to make good music for people that will enjoy it. That's a short term. uh, The solution is let's format this stuff so that it can get back on, so that it can get on black radio or whatever. And then we'll see, we'll sell this amount of units according to this amount of spins and we'll make our profit. We got all kinds of other stuff out there that these girls can do and make money for themselves with. You can do licensing. You can sell stuff on your own on the internet. You know, there's satellite radio. There's all kinds of stuff. You can use your music in so many ways besides getting it on the radio. They have options rather than to take a normal record deal. It can be a major or indie, but we're looking for the right deal for them now. So 
Do you think Tommy and Denny are the reason Invogue turned down deals with major companies in favor of Renee Moore's Rough Town Records? Dawn has gone on record, yes, while on the Instagram world tour, to state that Renee was an acquaintance <laughs> of Denzel Foster. Okay, uh, this this quote has rubbed me the wrong way. Um, and and while I respect <laughs> while I respect Tommy and Denny to the utmost. This entire statement is full of delusion because how can you, who have not had commercial success in over 20 years, tell a group that that is trying to stay commercially successful, this is what you need to do? How do you know that when you haven't had any success in mainstream in two decades? And, and the fact that Cindy and Terry and... And unfortunately, Rona listened for listen and and went that way. It's like, but uh, where is the advice from people who were in the current landscape? Yes, you do want to put out. Yes, you do want to put out art that speaks to you that you're proud of. But the whole point of being in the music business is for the business to be successful. So why are you making? I think Fifty Cent and Fifty Cent is a very controversial, controversial uh, <laughs> individual. But he said something years ago. He has said, "If you're an artist and you want to make something personal, do it on your own time. If you want, if you want to make a personal album, you make a personal album and you don't release it because that's not what the people want to hear." Now, with what now, if you make a personal album that's also commercially viable, then you have a great equation. But we're not here. Mm-hmm, it's like it, it, mm-hmm. it's like at the end of the day, it's about hits. It's about radio play. It's about streams. It's about award award contention. It's about um, um, publishing and placements. That's what it's about. And so you have to con- continually reinvent yourself, reinvent the wheel in order to stay successful in this industry because it's changing. Every two years, the industry is changing. Trends change, sounds change, artists change, you know. Uh, so it's like that <laughs> this whole statement has like threw me for a loop because I'm like, that doesn't make sense. It's like, it's it it's it's ugh. I'm trying to be as respectful as possible. <laughs> I'm trying to be, but but it but it th- this statement because I I assume I'm assuming and I could be wrong that this statement is him regurgitating a conversation he had with Invogue or specifically City of Dairy. So for me, it's it can read as subtle sabotage like i sound like i'm supporting you and i'm giving you great advice but i'm really giving you advice that's going to derail you in the long run and maybe they didn't know that maybe it was the the intention is there but I, but i just feel like this advice is not good advice it, it it's not it's 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 horrible advice for a group that's trying to stay relevant Come on, look at Beyonce, look at Pink, look at, you know, Usher, look at Justin Bieber, look at all these successful artists who have had so much longevity, they continue to reinvent themselves to stay relevant, because that is what the industry is about, to remain relevant. 
Well, and to be very clear, I think after Masterpiece Theater, the the moment of reinvention would have been the Soulflower era. I think by the time we got to Electric Cafe, I think what would have been a more appropriate like plan or trajectory would have been to say, okay, what's popping over there on the adult contemporary R&B charts right now? And how do we align mm-hmm. ourselves with what's happening over there with like folks who are also older, like way older acts who are getting number ones like Charlie Wilson and some of these other folks who were getting really, really viable commercial radio friendly songs on adult contemporary R&B, Lettucey, et cetera. How do we get that sound and make it the in vogue thing? How do we bridge those two things? And I think that there's moments on Electric Cafe, we won't go all the way in on it, but there's moments on Electric Cafe where I can kind of hear it. And I think Rocket is a great record. I think Rocket, I I remember when I heard Rocket on the radio and I was like bugging because I was like, oh my God, finally, like finally, finally, finally. And I just... And even um, y'all know I love, but I love, and I love me some reach, um, reach for me. I think reach for me would have been a bop. So good. That would have been so a summer song down. However, I just don't know that that was the intent. I think they happened with those songs, happened upon those songs, but I don't know that that was the intent going in. And so I don't know. I just think that there's a real a tug of war here between producers and an artist who are also struggling with relevance and how do you support one another show loyalty to one another when the music landscape is changing so it's so fickle it's changing every other day new sounds coming in and out how do you stay afloat when you need to be grabbing onto life jackets and life vests that are held by other producers and other people, but you want to save each other. And so it feels like there's a loyalty there that I appreciate. I think loyalty is great. I think that's a beautiful thing to see in the industry, especially knowing how like crazy it can be to really be like, I'm going to stand by each, I'm going to stand by you. But also there's a point where you have to say, (laughs) If I send you on to do your thing and you're successful, I can come along and I can maybe join you later and maybe we can figure out how to also still support each other down the line. I don't know. It's just an, it's, mm, mm, no. Well, my thing is, I agree 100% with what both of you are saying. Um, As far as supporting them, like, I think, I feel like they've shown their loyalty to Tommy and Jenny just beyond the pale. And, uh, but like, with the coming to America, coming to America, the sequel, the song that they did, it was produced by Eris Arcantis, but they let Tommy or Denzel Foster produce the vocals, which I don't know why they can't produce their own vocals, but like that's hooking him up. Like they didn't need anybody to, like they could have, whatever arrangement was there, like that's the song you've already done. They could produce it themselves. So that's enough. But with them, it's just like the control thing. Like they have to write, produce, play the instruments, pick the people because, um, Rocket, I think that was Curtis Sauce Wilson, who was from Something for the People, who's like an F-Mob act. Dim Joints is, I think, managed by Denny. It might be Tommy, but they're still their people. So it's like, okay, at the very least, can we just work with your people and not you? Because you're not able to bring the hits. And like what he said, brought me the wrong 
wrong way too, Chan, because it's like when I'm going to a concert, like I don't care how you're monetizing your money. Like if you, you know, if it's going to be played in a commercial or something, I want to hear something hot. I want to hear something that I enjoy, something that, you know, that I could dance to. So I don't make music for the radio. Well, then like it's going to flop. And that's like the contention that probably happened with Sylvia. Like, how do I format this? What radio station is going to play this? Like we need a hit. Oh, we don't make music for the radio. Okay. So then now you're at odds commercially. But then if you notice what In Vogue does is they go to adult urban contemporary radio, which it seems like he had an issue with because he's talking about that one radio format. Well, that's the only way, that's the only format that's really going to give them their flowers. Like pop is not going to play them. Maybe dance if you actually made dance music and work with remixers. So basically you're setting them up to fail. And that's what happened with Electric Cafe. Pyramid Records, which is, I guess it's like maybe more so a jazz label signed them. And when they heard it, like they gave it back. They're like, we can't do this. And then um, with E1, like, if you remember, like they, like, I guess the record was already done, but I forget the CEO's name, but like they kept going back. And we, so then we started getting, um, like have a seat and we started getting, um, reach for me. And then rocket, I think was the last one because they were on that tour of Australia when they were, when they, you know, with Neo. And so then he wrote the lyrics to Rocket and that, that was like the end of 2017. So all this time you had a record, but it was so bad that like when you tried to turn it in, the CEO's like, no. So I'm saying like their music is a, a, like Tommy and Denny's music is objectively, I, I, I don't want to say bad, but it's objectively not commercial. It objectively is not going to format well into, you know, the market that will show love to In Vogue. So they're putting them at odds. And yes, I do believe that In Vogue Cindy and Terry in particular turned down like the deals with um, Sony and I think Warner because if you're signed with those labels, they're not going to let Tommy and Denny produce. So I feel like their whole career is basically trying to validate these two men that have made more money off of them than they've made off of themselves. Like anytime we hear never going to get it or free your minds on the commercial, like Tommy and Denny are getting paid, you know, very well, but they're not. But you're going out of your way to try to elevate them and show them, you know, you are the king. Like, this is your concept. You started it. But you're shooting yourself in the foot every time you do that. In conclusion, I, I, look, we have we have really, I, I think that it goes without saying that we definitely have to give flowers to all these men who have been instrumental in, in making these women so inspirational to us. Um, so, yeah, mm-hmm. shout out to y'all. Um in conclusion, is it chimerical to think a girl group could produce a personal record like My Life and break past the conventions of matching outfits and bland choreography? If any girl group has the capacity to dismantle the limitations of what it means to be a girl group, In Vogue is a prime candidate. Unfortunately, circumscribed within the tight boundaries of F-Mob's production abilities. In Vogue's latter discography suggests obsolence. The stage is the only refuge. Their glimmers of the ladies' ladies' might remain. Danielle Smith hinted at the Catch-22 permeating In Vogue's legacy since inception in an article for the April 1994 edition of Spin Magazine, quote, to disinvogue for employing male producers is to fall into a well-camouflaged sexist trap. By doing so, 
I negate the glorious singing voices of these four women, the skill and joy they put into their perfect notes, by labeling Cindy, Maxine, Terry, and Dawn interchangeable props in Foster and McElroy's scripts. I make the men automatically more important, end quote. Danielle goes on to draw a parallel to the Supremes, a rookie mistake. The Supremes' Fingali was Barry Gordy, a record executive who made sure the Supremes, the Diana-led lineup anyway, had the best songs irrespective of who wrote them. Not record executives, F-Mob's influence solely exists in producing. Their need to produce, despite the litany of subpar results for the last 25 plus years, demonstrates a need to control. Conceptualize, write, compose, produce, and program the keyboards and drum machine. What Tommy and Denny have permitted in vogue to record Don't Let Go if the ladies were still signed to two tough enough productions. I don't think so. I, I don't honestly, I don't think so either. I mean, you, you heard it before. Like Terry said, didn't Terry is the one who said she didn't like the song at first. I know that um, Andrea Martin said that like the two that really went up for it were Don and Maxine. And I know Don has said that like anytime F mob didn't produce something, F-Mob is Foster and McElroy, um, for those that might be like, who is F-Mob? Foster and McElroy, that's what they called themselves, like, in the 90s when they had, like, um, a music act. Um, they were a duo. But anyway, um, she said, like, any song that they didn't do, like, you know, she didn't really care for it that much. So, you know, it's, and it's like, of course, Don't Let Go is, like, a great song. So, my thing is just that I don't even think it, they, it would have gotten to them had they been, um, you know, had they been under the production deal with the good thing that happened when they re- renegotiated their contract and they were out of the contract with Too Tough Enough is that Sylvia was able to bring them songs. And then once they signed back to them, F-Mob did everything on Masterpiece Theater. They wrote, produced, you know. So it's like I said, I think it's a control thing. I don't even think they would have looked um to see what else was out there unless they had managed, you know, organized notes, which they didn't. So the people who they managed, like, something for the people, that's why, you know, something for the people got a song on um, Terry's solo album. That, you know, unless they know you, unless you kind of, like, brought them into the game, they're not gonna really, you know, allow you to have any kind of, you know, shine. So I don't think they would've. This discussion reminds me of um, Janelle Monet just kind of, like, um, trying to connect the dots. You know, when Janelle Monet first came out, she wore nothing but black and white, mainly black and white tuxedos. Mm-hmm. And she said it it was a homage to her mother, who was a maid. Um, and, and for her to always feel like she was in service to the art and to the fans, which is a great foundation to stand on. But as we can see, you know, she ended up evolving um from tuxedos to like you know wearing gowns and other type of suits or whatever they were still black and white but she was kind of given more more variety of outfits and then now if you see her her hair is dyed she has all different kind of haircuts she's wearing blue and green and 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 red and all you know what i mean like she she's changing and she (laughs) gave she gave but she gave a statement and she said that the reason for her evolution is that she didn't want to be a slave to her own beliefs and I and well, and I, I like say that. that and I say that because I feel like um with In Vogue and even F Mob and Tommy and Denny, there is this it for me at least, 
I interpret like all their actions as a way to kind of hold on to the legacy that in Vogue was built on. But in, and while I understand that because it, it, it has its place. Um, it also seems that that action also causes them to like be it's eating them alive. You, you eating them alive, and it's it's like you're not receptive to other things that might not look the way in vogue look is supposed to look or sound to you, but it makes sense for the longevity of the movement on a grander scale. You know, it's like, that's why it's always great to like, you know, bring in people from the outside because they might see cracks in the foundation that you don't see because you're so focused and you have such tunnel vision, you know, and, and it seems mm-hmm. like there, there's, there's like this, um, resistance to change when it comes to in vogue, in vogue sound, in vogue music, in vogue look or whatever, you know, and then, you know, if something, if something is different and it might not, you know, hit right away, then you retreat, a la EB3. Well, Danielle should have juxtaposed In Vogue and the Ronettes, a group also at the mercy of its producer. Once finally inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, kept out by that same producer, longtime fan Keith Richards felt it necessary to proclaim they don't need the wall of sound. There would be no In Vogue without Foster and McElroy. This is true. It is also true that there can be an in vogue without Foster and McElroy. There can be in vogue without all the divas men. So now we're going to get into a segment of our submitted letters, which is one of our favorite uh, moments in the podcast. Um, And our first letter comes from A.W. It's an email from A.W. You know, that's our friend. Hey, A.W. And he wrote, when he wrote it, it said private message. So he may have intended it for us for it to be for our eyes only, but we gonna read it anyway <laughs> because we, we petty <laughs> like that. Okay. So AW wrote, you know what? I am starting over from the beginning, listening again, episode by episode, and you all are so groundbreaking. I always thought I was alone in the room when nobody was checking for them. I invoke. Calling them the Golden Girl. Who was calling them the Golden Girls? Uh-uh. <laughs> hey, um, calling them the Golden Girls, LOL, and I would be the only one going hard, going in hard for them against the escapes and Desi's Child and Brownstones in them. Primarily just for Terry, but two for the group. I really appreciate y'all. Thanks, guys. It's good to know that I was not alone and so glad y'all found each other. Love y'all. Y'all are so real. Keep going. I still seen them live and in person more than all of you combined. Thanks for reading my letter. I don't letter. think so. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for reading my letter. Shh, you bees. Champ, I'm going to choke you. What do I do? <laughs> what? <laughs> what I do? What I say? Probably something He's messy. He's going to choke you. Oh, <laughs> I'm trying to say something messy. That sounds personal. <laughs> That's a beautiful Thank letter, you. though. That's I a really will, beautiful I will letter. Say, if there was beauty in the letter. When, when you get was. past all of the... Um... <laughs> I will piggyback and say that I have the same sentiment where I feel like there are a few uh there are people who don't give in vogue their flowers the way they give like escape or desi's child or brownstone in that regard because i have friend i have friends um 
when I would always mention Vogue, they'd be like, ah, they, I mean, they're okay. And then I had a friend of mine, a really close friend of mine. I, I pleaded a case for in Vogue at like a gay night or something like that. I pleaded a case for them. And maybe like six months later, my friend texted me out of nowhere. He was like, you're right about in Vogue. I was like, what are you talking about? And he said, I literally went from the beginning. I watched all their videos. I watched all their most popular performances. And I understand why you fan so hard and I agree with you. And I was like, it 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 just takes a moment to research to know that Invoke is the blueprint, you know. But I digress. Mm-hmm. Thank you for your letter, uh AW. We appreciate you being a subscriber and listening for sure. We appreciate you, AW. You crazy, but we appreciate you. <laughs> Okay, so we're going to get into the rare track. And because this episode is about all the divas men and we, you know, we did a lot with Foster McElroy, we wanted to just pay a little tribute to them by picking a song that they actually did for another artist. It's Body Talk by Sharon Bryant, who is formerly of Atlantic Star. It was released in 1990. The magic of the song is that it features backing vocals from In Vogue. Dawn Magazine and Terry, you know, Cindy probably was busy auditioning for something. Um, but it features backing vocals from Dawn Magazine and Terry. It was recorded at Starlight Studios in Richmond, California from the 1989 Wing release, Here I Am. What do you think about? Do you guys like the song? It's, it's very uh, New Jack, but I kind of have an affinity for New Jack, and so I love it. Um, and I also really love Sharon Bryant. Like I just, I, I have a soft space in my heart for Atlantic Star. So I, and it's nice to. He- I didn't know this until we were preparing for this episode that they were on backing vocals for this song, and so. It's kind of a fun listen to sort of try to pick up and hear what's going on in the backing. Um, but it's about, I was moving. Mm-hmm. I was moving to it. I liked it. Like, I think, and I want to say this because I know probably for some people, they might think we were trying to go in on Foster McElroy, and that's not the thing. Like, I go hard for Funky Divas. I go hard for Born to Sing. I like this song. It's just that certain producers, you know, like they just have that moment and they had a moment, a great moment. Like I'm sure a a lot of people would kill for that moment, you know? So, um, like a Kashif, like the, like we can name people who had great moments for like a period, you know, when they were in demand. And then after that, you know, you know, you go to kind of the next person. And I feel like that's kind of what happens. Like people, you know, just their sound and their style doesn't translate past a certain point. And that's okay. It's just, that's what it is for most people. Not everybody can be like a Nile Rodgers. Not everybody can be a, a Jimmy and Terry. Not everybody can be a Max Martin. And like you have like this decade expanse. And maybe that is because your work was so groundbreaking and so of that time. It's not a negative thing. I'm just saying like for the new Jack though, from like 19, I guess, um, 84-ish to 1992, they were the men. But you know, like that kind of sound is just not the thing anymore. So... But I do, I'd enjoyed the song and I loved when I knew that that was Don 
Terry and Magazine coming in, you know, with the harmonies, um, I think of the second verse. I was like, oh, those are my girls. I think we've reached the end of our episode. So please make sure you stream part of us on Audible, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. And come check us out on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram at Invoke Craze and on Twitter at Part of Us Fancast. And please, please, please hit us up at Part of Us EVF at gmail.com if you have ideas, interview requests, comments, or questions. And we will see you next episode. Bye. This episode of Part of Us, an Invoke Fancast, was researched and written by Matan and produced and edited by Matthew at Culture Inject Productions. The intro and outro music was produced by Wolves and Vincent Tone. We're more than just a podcast. We're a fan community. You can keep up to date on Invoke and chat with other fans by visiting Invoke Craze on Facebook. You can also follow us on YouTube and Instagram at Invoke Craze and Twitter at Part of Us Fancast. Part of us and Invoke Fancast is not endorsed by Invoke, E1 Music, or Invoke Records and is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only. Invoke and its names, images, and audio clips are registered trademarks and or copyrights of their respective copyright holders.